Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program's Research Seminar. I'm Victoria Budson. I'm the Executive Director here. Most of you know here at the Women in Public Policy Program, we don't just focus on what gaps are, but how to close them. Today we're going to hear from Associate Professor Laura Schober. She's from the University of Florida. She did her undergraduate work at the University of Chicago. She then got her PhD in international relations from the University of Southern California, uh, from University of Southern California. In addition, she has a law degree. She is an absolutely spectacular addition to the WAP faculty community and network. This is her second time being a fellow here at WAP. She is a prolific writer and publisher and has done so in a very large number of significant and important journals within her field. Those of you who come regularly know that I never read from a bio. But Laura's has enough detail, I'm going to read. She has been published in International Studies Review, International Studies Perspectives, International Political Sociology, International Studies Quarterly, and she's written several different books, Gender, Justice, and the Wars in Iraq, Mothers, Monsters, and Whores, Women's Violence and Global Politics, and Gendering Global Conflict Towards a Feminist Theory of War. Her work really focuses on gender and just war theory, And today, she's talking to us with a talk titled The Protection Racket, looking at the girls of war 1914 and 2014. And we look forward to hearing your perspectives and comparison. Would you like to take questions during your talk or held to the end? Either is fine. Okay, either is fine, and we are podcasting today. Thank you. With an introduction like that, I'd better say something smart. Um, so this is a relatively new project, but it's tied to a bunch of my old work, and I'll try and let you know those links and stuff like that. So I use the term girls both literally and figuratively, because I'm both interested in what happens to and the significations of actual girls, that is female children in war and conflict, and interested in the times and ways that women and femininity are framed in terms of girlhood. So you'll often hear hear the word girl used for adult women um, as a kind of way of describing their relationships to war and politics. So the girls of war are both actual girls and women framed as girls. And I'm interested in how these appear in war narratives. That is how war stories of girls are told. So when I use the word war narratives, I mean the stories of war that are told both during the wars to citizens of the participant states and the world, and in the history of books that tell of wars in retrospect. So with the tradition of work analyzing narratives in global politics, this project treats narrative evaluation as both a substantive choice and a methodological one. Substantively, I argue that war narratives are a condition of possibility of the making and fighting of wars. So the stories we tell of wars are part of what makes them possible, and therefore need to be understood as a part of explaining war and conflict. Methodologically, I see thinking about war narratives as a means to identify the important significations of things we pick up on in war and conflict, both generally and in historical context. 
So war narratives form the foundation for the ways that people are motivated to fight wars. The ways that wars are packaged and sold to populations and to donors, and the ways that wars are told in the history books. These stories motivate and sustain war efforts, both for individual people, the story you tell yourself about why you fight or support the war or take deprivation for the war, but also for the national level, where Cynthia Enlow once said, war imitates narrative which imitates war. Right, so you tell the stories which make the war, which then makes the stories. So in those stories, the actual number of victims and kind of relatedly their innocence or guilt are secondary considerations. What counts is the capacity to kill the triumphal narrative of the enemy. So the idea is how you break up the war story of the people that you're fighting against. So physical violence and war narratives need to be understood, I argue, as distinct parts of a war instead of as the war and then the separate story about it. So if narratives shape wars and wars shape narratives, this project takes a narrative approach to thinking about gender and security, looking to understand the gender narratives of war and security as one of the primary ways where we make sense of the world around us in war and conflict. So I'm arguing that war narratives are gendered. And on one hand, this should be no big deal because there are gender in almost all of our war stories in one way or another. On the other hand, I think it's really actually important to think about the roles that gender play. So about 30 years ago, a feminist philosopher named Nancy Huston wrote that the plots of war narratives can basically be reduced to the good guys fighting the bad guys for valorous reasons where they overcome hardship and suffering and then they win the good fight and winning the good fight includes protecting the women and children back home. And I don't think that all war narratives are quite that simple, but I actually do think it's important to think about that because the winning of the good fight is often translated into saving the innocent women and children back home. And the threat to lose is often framed in terms of the risk of the sexual violation of your women and children by the enemy. Um, so in fact, the very last uh, kind of war poster put out in Nazi Germany said, don't let the red beast rape our women, right? That was like the last kind of, oh no, we've really lost now, or something like that. Okay, so I used the word the protection racket. Uh, which is actually a pretty old word. It was invented before I was born uh, by somebody named Sue Ray Peterson, who's also a feminist philosopher. And I'm going to try and explain the idea a little bit to you because it plays a central role in the analysis that I do later on. So both Sue Ray Peterson and Jean L. Shane suggest that there's an ideal type of a warrior, a soldier, what men should be in war, called a just warrior. Now this ideal type is not a guy who likes to kill people or really enjoys fighting. It's somebody who his job is protection and fundamentally his citizenship and his warrior nature and his braveness and his masculinity are tied to providing protection for an idealized other. So the responsibility to provide this chivalrous protection is key to his identity and rewarded with both honor and full citizenship. But if the just warrior is the ideal typical combatant, 
you need the other, the foil, the person on the other side, which Elstein calls the beautiful soul. It's the woman who's innocent of the war, but the reason that you have to fight it. Keeps her hands clean and doesn't really know what's going on, but must be fought for because of that. So she needs protection for a whole bunch of reasons. Her presumed innocence, her ability to engage in the biological and cultural reproduction of the state and nation, that is her role as a mother, and her presumed physical weakness, that is inability to protect herself. So this beautiful soul doesn't make or fight wars, but the wars can't be made or fought without her. So she has to be separated from and protected from the conflict at all points, and that protection then compounds the key motivation for the just warriors fighting. Okay, so I'm not claiming that either women don't fight uh, or men aren't civilians, and I'm not claiming that people in policy practice consciously make wars to fight for innocent women. Um, although, when talking about why he was going to fight the war in Iraq, G.W. Bush said that targeting women and children is everywhere and always wrong, and we will fight evil and call it by its name as like the third reason to fight the war in Iraq, um, which I don't think, I don't even think he thought, I hope he didn't think. Um, but it is salient in policy discourses a little bit, but mostly I'm arguing that it's a subconscious depiction and part of the war stories we tell. So <coughs> women's bodies and their roles become a battleground for different idealized versions of the nationalist project and stories of the conflict. And a number of feminist theorists have suggested that this means in practice the civilian immunity principle is actually complicit in motivating the fighting of wars, especially as it's gendered. So I'm interested in the evolution of these gendered war narratives. I'm particularly interested in the argument that they're not necessarily, a lot of people would say the stories that are about women and men, about masculinity and femininity, don't really matter because you could tell the same story if you just took the gender words out. And what I want to argue is that there's something deeper in it, something that makes the stories rely on the gender words and the gender words important to the wars. So I started thinking about this watching the hashtag bring back our girls campaign uh, now 16 or 17 months ago. Um, and I started being interested in figuring out if I could tell an image of the girls in war kind of differing over time. And I'd done a lot of work previously on how people had thought about gender significations in the Second World War, and there's a lot of kind of stuff out there that analyzes and thinks about that. But I kind of thought both because we don't really talk about gender in the First World War as much, and because in security studies, there's a joke that if you have a theory of security, then you have to explain the First World War or else you don't have a theory of security. Um, that combined with the kind of 100-year time period made me think maybe it was worth digging into the images of women and gender in the First World War. So these images are mostly uh, from the Entente side of the First World War, mostly because of availability, it's early in the project. I hope to get both of them. Um, but 
a lot of this is pictorial and I'm going to try and explain kind of what these pictures say and how that fits in the historical narratives. Um, so the girls of World War, World War I are in part the traditional notion of the beautiful soul. They're innocent of war, at risk of being injured by the war, and the symbol of everything that needs to be fought for. How could we civilized people let the woman drown holding her baby when the Lusitania sunk? How many more women holding their babies in a beautiful white dress with perfect hair would need to die and drown before the unpunk could beat their enemies? Um, this is actually a fairly common depiction of the female civilian in the war, that is the white dress and the long hair um, and attached to a baby. Um, and it kind of gives you the sense that here's this innocent victim and yet you're not enlisting to protect the innocent victim, right? Um, so the little girl in the picture next to her sits in this cute dress with a bow in her hair, trying to play with her toys and just have normal girlhood until you realize that here's the military pack and the guns right next to her, right? And so the message you're supposed to take is that it's a travesty that this little girl's life has to be touched by war at all and you need to go win the war to protect her innocence, her childhood, and her baby doll, and take the guns out of the picture of it. So what's interesting here is that the guns are not normatively good to anyone, right? They're just a normative necessary evil, kind of, as the image presents itself. Which is a similar story to kind of the stories told on this page. So, in the middle, when the soldier is kind of taking the time to talk to the little girl, he's clearly in the middle of a war zone, there's fighting going on, uh, and given the dirt on her face and the kind of poverty look on her, of her dress, the audience is supposed to understand that she is but shouldn't be affected by the war. And the soldier's purpose is to fight, but it's to fight for her, so she comes first. Um, the YWCA poster, remind you that there's a girl behind the man behind the gun. And again, the girl is in this pretty white dress, um, kind of the beautiful soul other. Uh, but it also kind of tells you that she's not involved in the war, but responsible for supporting. So what the beautiful soul owes the just warrior who protects her is the loyalty and support that she could possibly give him. So she's not fighting, she's not guilty of the fighting, but she better be the supportive person that will help him fight and give him the motivation to fight. And Josh Goldstein actually wrote a book where he suggested that a lot of men who fight wars somewhat reticently uh, will tell you that the reason they did it is because their mother, their wife, their daughters encouraged them to be brave for their country. Right, so that's kind of what's behind that. Um, and then the third poster on this side tells a story that kind of talks across the other ones that we've seen so far. Where there's this iconic kind of white woman with a baby who's being threatened by this terrible, monstrous image of the Hun, uh, right? And how you're supposed to save her from the monster is buying war bonds because um, the enemy will kill her if you don't. So that's kind of an encouragement to fight the war in its various ways to save this <coughs> beautiful and innocent woman. So 
then these are fairly more passive images of women, but as you can see, they're pretty much kind of the same appearance of the woman, right? The woman is dressed in white, light-skinned, uh, looks innocent and forlorn, um, and suggests that it's actually really important to fight the war in order to protect these women. And even when the women are needed to serve the war effort, it's kind of in this story as look at the beautiful and innocent other. So the stories on this slide are a little bit more complicated, actually. In the first image, here's this innocent, well-dressed woman again, um, and she's being abducted by the mad brute. Um, so this is a lot like the story of the Hun two slides back, right? Um, but the other three are giving a little bit more responsibility to the women in various contexts, like we saw hinted at on the previous pictures. So the second image shows a mother taking care of her family despite the difficulty of the war, where she's the mother to the society being saved. So not only does she need to care for the vulnerable girl, she also needs to ration in her kitchen so that the country can ration with her by saving enough bread to make sure that there's enough for the war. So she ends up being a housewife both to her husband and to her country. The third and fourth images, though, present a more agential notion of the women. So these women are shaming men into participating in the war effort rather than either being passive or participating themselves. So in the third picture, this woman is goading the man into participating by suggesting that she will fight if he doesn't. And that's supposed to be so unconventional, so terrible, so out of the question, that he gets his butt on the ship, right? Like, so it's the idea is that the very preposterousness of this suggestion is supposed to get men who were otherwise unwilling to fight to do so. Because those who are protected by definition from wars can't be those who fight them. And the fourth image is a little bit more of an understated notion of the same thing. Here the woman is kind of helpless looking wistfully out the window, uh, kind of trying to get the British men to go help the other ones who are dying as she watches out the window. But both of those kind of tell you an important story about how it is that you might understand the role of the woman who's at once innocent of the war but needs to remind you that she's the thing that needs to be fought for. Okay, so these are kind of similar images um, where the iconic young blonde girl in the white dress with the bow in her hair on this side, right, uh, to, implies at once that you need patriotism in order to support the war and that the girl holding the bonds is the one who needs to be supported by the war. But I put that next to this image, which has another girl with a bow in her hair, because I think this one's a little less innocent. Um, so this girl fits a very different narrative. She's sitting on Uncle Sam's lap. She has this bow in her hair um, in her kind of peripheral position in the picture. So it shows the responsibility that boys and girls can help win the war. But there's kind of a sordid look to it that is the lipstick and the blush and things like that. Um, and I, I might just be reading that into it, but let me tell you why I don't think so. 
Um, so the other girls of World War One um, are the ones who are a threat to give you VD. Um, and these are just a few um, of a fairly large number of posters. I'll show you a few more. Um, where the woman is the temptation which might debunk soldiers ability to fight. Um, so here she's a booby trap. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the middle one, a minute with Venus, which is the pretty Greek god, gives you a year with Mercury, which was the cure for VD, right? And then here's the woman who's the sabbatus of war, and she's wearing a scarf, if you can't read it, that says venereal carrier on it, um, which apparently is how you tell if a woman has VD. Um, <laughs> Okay, so we fought in the open the bubonic plague, the yellow fever, and tuberculosis, now venereal diseases. So this is the next war, is the war on VD, uh, right? And then kind of here, warning, the enemies are still lurking around. Uh, so this is right after the end of the war um, in late 1918, and it turns out that the war isn't over because you still have to fight the women with VD. Um, and so then you have the poster of the kind of devilish looking woman with smutty suggestions and the needle here says poison that's being injected into the back of the head of the well-behaved soldier. Um, and then here this one says boys your sweetheart your wife or your parents may not ever know if you contract a venereal disease but all know it and all suffer from it. Um, and so you kind of have this image, and then of course the loaded gun, uh, that is the woman who is loaded with VD. Don't take your chances with pickups. Loose women may also be loaded with disease. Um, and these are just kind of a couple of very many posters. So VD can be cured, but there's no medicine for regret. Um, <laughs> the juke joint sniper. Um, you've kept fit, fit and defeated the Hun, now set a high standard for a clean America. Um, or my personal favorite, did you put your helmet on? Um, but these posters, there's an estimated like 300 of them that were produced by the US military alone. The British military and the French military did the same thing. Um, and I include them partly because how could you not? Um, but partly because it shows another underside of the civilian woman in war um, that hasn't really been discussed theoretically, which is well, women are the well, pure innocent women are the things that you should fight for. Women who don't meet that mold are the things you should fight against. Um, and that's actually true of the other or enemy civilians. That is, very few people made these posters about their own women, right? Although Americans made it about British and French women. Um, so there was kind of a sense that it was the other's women that were a threat to the purity of your country. Um, Laura, where would these be posted? Um, 
There are various history books and history websites that have them. There was a full exhibit of these posters at the Chicago Museum of Art four years ago, which is where I got most of them. Um, And they were published in a book kind of related to that exhibit. Um, Some of them, though, are Googleable. So if if you're interested in World War I and gender posters, then you just kind of Google image it and you get about half of these. Um, Okay, so of course the images in 2014, which somehow I managed to cover up the date on the slide, very good. Um, So the images in 2014 were a little bit different, obviously, for a lot of reasons. The first is that what I showed you were largely propaganda posters, uh, either for governments or organizations in the First World War. The hashtag bring back our girls campaign was pretty much grassroots and it was on social media as opposed to on posters and newspapers and things like that, although newspapers did carry some of these stories and the photos and things like that. So I'm not trying to say that there's a similar or comparable campaign, but what I am trying to suggest is that both kind of cast a sense of what girls in war and conflict are, and you can see a lot of parallels as well as a lot of differences. So uh, this is kind of some of the images that I found with the hashtag on it that came off of the internet. And then I wanted to give you kind of a fairly wide variety of them. So some of them, like this one right here, are clearly kind of part of a stylized photo shoot and ad to uh, contribute to the campaign. Um, Some of them are kind of cameos. I actually found 115 different shots of Michelle Obama with that poster. Um, So that was clearly also kind of organized. But I picked this one uh, because I thought that the look on her face was kind of interesting. Um, And then there's also, I think, a big tension between some of these images that are calling for human rights help and social help, and then the one in this corner um, that actually says, you know, how about you go do something about it? Go pick up a gun and get the girls back. Um, And in fact, the number of interviews with active duty members of the US military in the week or two that this was a big deal suggested that they felt like they were being tweeted into uh, possibly some sort of intervention effort. Um, And that the social media was kind of suggesting that if you want to bring back our girls, do you have a question? Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I just have a methodological question. Sure. Why are you using this example? Because this is not like you're using example of posters for U.S. Army when U.S. was engaged somehow. But like this is a separate uh, conflict, not that directly related to U.S. Um. So I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. First, actually, some of those images were from the U.K. and France. Um, in the World War II images, and I, I mean the World War One images, and I actually really hope that I can get some of the similar images from other places in the world. Um, I haven't had the opportunity yet to. Uh, but also, and I'll talk about this a little more at the end, the idea was to see what was similar and what was different across very different time, place, and cultural contexts. 
So I'm partly interested in the international reaction. Here there are people from several different countries, not just the US. Um, but actually, a number of the pictures that kind of come after this are local reactions as well. Um, and I'm interested in the ways in which we can tell a similar narrative across very different conflicts, and then the differences that you might see affected by time, place, culture, and of course, um, most people would call this a civil war if they called it a war at all, um, whereas World War I was an international conflict, right? And so they're very, they're very different contexts, and that was part of the point. Um, so then there's kind of, I, I took one of these tweets, uh, there, there were, I think we've collected something like six million different tweets, um, but uh, they pretty much have a very similar context, which is kind of bring back our girls or bring our girls back. Um, and if you use both of them, you find a lot more tweets than one or the other. Um, and then they characterize the girls as at once helpless and brave, um, and you need to kind of then understand uh, that you need to save them because they cannot possibly save themselves. Um, and one of the interesting things that we did kind of as we started this project was we did a discourse analysis of what we collected about 600 newspaper stories in the first four days that this was being covered. Um, and we kind of wanted to do the first four days because that's the time when you get like the punchline. Um, as opposed to the longer journalistic pieces that really have a lot of content. Um, and in only four of them did we find an age listing for the girls. Um, so if you just read them, you would get this kind of, the girls are girls and that's all you need to know about them thing. And in four of them, they listed the ages of the girls as between 14 and 18, right? Which is not exactly what you think of when you hear the word girls. Right, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Um, then the appearance of more details, of course, comes up uh, very soon after. Um, but so one of the things that I thought was interesting about these is that they all suggest this innocent victim of war that needs to be taken care of and needs to be paid attention to, but they have very different understandings of what it would mean to pay attention. So some of them think that celebrity advertisement is, is the attention. Some of them think that military intervention is the attention. Some of them are kind of making a human rights claim. And you can see the differences across the images. Um, so this pixelated pretty badly. Uh, but this one is kind of one of the ad campaigns that was done. Uh, so you see 234 girls and then a picture of what we are to presume is one of the girls. Uh, Kidnapped in Nigeria, only a few have escaped, uh, and what are they going to do to the others, right? So if you don't act, something really bad is going to happen to these innocent girls. So demand the release of our girls, bring back our girls, right? Which is not a militaristic claim. That is, it actually isn't a claim, go save them. Instead, it's a claim, do the politics of making demands. Um, so this is a couple of more local reactions, right? These are pictures of Nigerians from Nigeria. Um, and here, 
the abductions must stop uh, is something that suggests that it's not just to these girls. And in fact, if you do any work on Nigerian politics at all, you see that this is not the first or last time people have been kidnapped uh, by groups that oppose the government or even by the government. Um, and it's not the last. So you get a sense that this is actually part of a larger history and trend. And for some reason, this particular kidnapping captured the international uh, kind of arena's attention. But that it's part of a larger kind of context of political turmoil. Um, and in fact, so over here you have bring our sisters home, show leadership. Right, so that what a good leader would do is protect the women and girls that are being threatened. Does Allah permit war against girls? So this is a context-specific suggestion that Boko Haram is not living up to their own religion, right? Um, so it says you're being a bad Muslim by making war against girls. Um, and so then you should be better at your religion and the government should show leadership, right? Um, and then the protect the future of Nigeria sign is kind of suggesting both that the innocent women and girls are the social and cultural reprodu reproducers of the state and nation. And then also at the same time, juxtaposed next to the leadership sign suggests that your responsibility for the future relies on your responsibility for taking care of the girls. So then this is actually a, a picture that in various versions has gone around the internet a bunch of times. It's presumed and claimed to be the kidnapped girls after they were kidnapped um, and as they were being held. And in a number of iterations of this image, one of the girls is standing up in front in this position. Um, and in this one, there isn't one. Um, but this is kind of an image that goes around with news articles that suggest that the girls are being tortured or that something is happening against their will, in part because they're dressed in Islamic dress when they weren't previously. Um, but there are also those who suggest that there's a lot of holes in that story, not least that this perfectly posed for a picture probably doesn't actually tell you a whole lot about anything that's going on. Um, kind of right next to it is an image that's been uh, on the internet and kind of posted with this picture a couple of times, which is, please sign the petition because the kidnapped girls were going to be sold to Islamic militants as brides for $12. Um, I don't entirely know how we learned the price, um, but there is this narrative that that's what either was going to happen or did happen to a lot of these kidnapped girls. So it's actually not just that they were kidnapped and tortured, it's then that what's going to happen is they're going to be sexually violated if you can't engage and save them. Um, so, <coughs> Then there's this kind of international reaction, right? Uh, so here you have that uh, they've been kidnapped by religious extremists opposed to education. And then the missing Nigerian schoolgirls are our daughters too, right? And this is an American cartoon. 
Um, and so there's been a lot of uh, kind of feminist analysis on the internet about this in blog posts and things like that that suggests that the possessive and hashtag bring back our girls is very interesting. Because it was originally used by Nigerian relatives of the women, right? So like bring back our girls actually meant our girls. Um, but then kind of it got picked up by people outside of Nigeria, outside of Africa and around the West. And then it wasn't clear who, whose R it was, right? Uh, that is, when I, for example, if I had made a tweet that said, bring back our girls, then I'm making a possessive claim to Nigerian girls, um, which has some colonialist implications in my view. Um, and I think that that's actually one of the very important parts of this story is that it means something very different for a Nigerian friend or a relative of these people to use that phrase than it does the people who mostly used it, uh, which were those people in the United States and Western Europe. Laura? I mean, yeah. I noticed a similar theme a, a, a few images ago when mm -hmm. to bring our sisters back, I think, Yeah. that appears at least to be relatively local people yeah. using sisters instead of just mm -hmm. girls, right. sort of that familial belongingness. Have you or anyone else done a content analysis of what came out of Nigeria compared to internationally? Um, we haven't really had an opportunity yet because right now I have a research assistant who's actually verifying the location of these images, I'm sure um, which, is, which is hard to do, right? So, so once we figure that out, I think we will. Um, but we have a couple of hundred of these images and I don't want to assume that traditional dress means you're Nigerian. Yeah. Um, so I want to kind of make sure that we're identifying the locality of the images before we do that work, which is why a lot of this is a little bit preliminary at this point. Um, okay, so uh, then this is pixelated pretty badly too, uh, but I found this, which was in theory a picture of the, a number of the girls who were kidnapped. Um, which is also something that got tweeted and retweeted, we counted a couple hundred thousand times. Um, and so, and then this one right here is actually an American ad, so over 200 of our Nigerian girls were kidnapped, right? Um, and then they need to be brought back. Um, so you would think that this is one of those times when you have the kind of innocence of the girls and you don't have the ugly underside of the narratives. Um, but that actually didn't turn out to be true. Uh, that is, six or seven months after it started, there was a suggestion that these girls were is Islamized, which I'm not entirely sure if that's a word, uh, but it is in this newspaper. Um, and they, there's, they were converted to Islam and married off. Um, that, so you would think that this is still a part of what the bad things happened to the girls, but then you would find a rash of newspaper articles that said this, which was that the girls who were kidnapped and who were innocent and who were tortured are now a threat to you. And they're a threat to you because they could be suicide bombers. Um, and this story was reported upwards of 50 times in early 2015 in January and February that they thought that the girls who were kidnapped were the same ones responsible for suicide bombings. 
Um, there appears to be no evidence either way whatsoever. Um, that is, the, the attacks that were being discussed, nobody has actually been clearly held responsible for. Um, so it could be, but there are also, you know, millions of other people in Nigeria, which seems a little more likely. Um, so my sense is that these stories are unsubstantiated currently. Um, yeah? Isn't the implication if you use passive language like being used, mm -hmm. the girls are still victims? So, I mean, the stories that I read about this, the sense was like, this is another step in their exploitation, not they've now been brainwashed and turned into like, you know, murderous monsters. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, in this story and the ones like it, the girls are still victims, but they're not really victims you would want to walk up to and save, right? Um, so it's a different characterization because, I, and I actually don't think that the women in World War One are like, you know, plotting to go, go go after you, right? Like in those kind of sexualized images. They're not saying like, that woman's out to get you. They're saying like, that woman's going to get you, right? Like, which I think is a little bit different. And this is a different story still. But I do think that the kind of turn of the kidnapped women into a threat isn't a coincidence. And I actually, it'll be a while before I think I'm confident in making this argument, but I'm gonna make the argument that this is a reaction to the impotence of being unable to save them. Um, yeah. What did the UN did about these girls of Nigeria, about victims of this British people? My sense is absolutely nothing. Um, my sense is that there's been a lot of talk around this and there's been a number of people who've tried to donate money, um, but that there hasn't been a real effort. On the other hand, it's very difficult, right, because this is not a place where there's not a government in charge, right? It's not a place where, where there's anarchy that would allow for intervention without violating state sovereignty. Um, but I don't think anyone really seriously considered that, in my view, yeah. Thinking comparatively now to draw some comparisons. Mm -hmm. um, firstly, what did you look at the narratives around the girls that actually self-selected and went to fight for IS? I, I remember there were two girls in the UK, I think, that received um, <coughs> much media attention because they were like pretty girls, and then they showed the two pictures for both mm -hmm. of them. So, what's the narrative about them, and how would it contrast? I suppose they are no longer talked of as girls. Or also, which hashtags um, emerged but didn't make, didn't somehow um, strike a nerve and weren't taken up? So, uh, how could we say when the hashtag becomes popular and when a hashtag just dies? Well, so in social media analysis, I don't know the answer to that. My, suggest my suggestion is that the reason this becomes internationally salient is because it's in some sense a hopeful story, um, which is a little bit creepy when you think about it, right? Um, but like, here are these innocent girls that could be saved if I tweeted from my living room couch. Um, and I think that there is actually a pretty good argument that armchair activism is a real big problem in something like this, right? Um, but I think that there are people who do social media analysis that could tell you better than I could. The ISIS thing, 
So I wanted to keep this to the stories of women in Boko Haram, and so far we have not yet found women who voluntarily joined the organization and admit it. Um, so we can tell that there are some women in the organization, um, mostly people who are married to men who are in the organization, but very few even at that. Um, and there is an uneasy alliance between Desh and Boko Haram, certainly. But at the same time, I think they're very distinct organizations with very distinct political purposes. Um, so I wouldn't be all that comfortable comparing the narratives. But if you want, kind of in a small tangent at some point, um, I will tell you that I have done a lot of research on women who voluntarily join ISIS and Daesh, uh, which is actually now, from what we can tell, upwards of 2,000 women, um, which is a fair from all over the world. Yeah. I'm just wondering how much state sovereignty has anything to do with it in terms of the UN intervening. Because as you mentioned in your presentation before, that these situations have happened before and are going to continue to happen. To say that the UN has already got a UN resolution, Resolution 1325, which talks about women and girls in, in, in a state of war or something like that. And the main two things that you can draw from that UN resolution is the issue around immunity, because you find that after the situation, perhaps if they had found the people that committed the, these crimes, they won't be prosecuted because of the immunity. But the second aspect to it that's also very important to um, resolution 1325 is the issue of women and girls being used as weapons mm -hmm. of war. I mean, it's certainly, like, it's certainly to me, it's a very charitable interpretation to suggest that state sovereignty matters. I don't think there was ever the political will on the part of any government to care about this. Perhaps the Nigerian government, uh, but maybe not, actually, and probably not, considering how it worked, right? Like, so I think that this became something that was something that social media paid attention to and the average person paid attention to for a little while in different places in the world, but I don't think there was ever a very serious political effort mounted to get people to intervene in it. Um, and I th if you asked me why, I would probably say that uh, there are race and class implications to who we want to save and who we don't want to save. To some extent, where like these people are our girls, but not our girls, like our boys would go fight for them. Um, and I think that that's a real problem in terms of the nationalist narratives of the countries that were making these tweets. Uh, yeah. Um, so back to the possessive mm -hmm. pronoun part. While the colonialism it, it, it part is plausible, but I think the underlying intention is very benign. Because from a social psychology standpoint, it's you one is more likely to help their own kin versus a stranger. And so in that case, I think what they're doing is reframing from being Nigerian girls to human being. So it's more inclusive and more people are likely to help. I, I think the intent is beautiful. I think the effect is violent. Um, and like, I think that you know, when you say those are our girls, then you're trying absolutely to include <coughs> them in you in your life. But there's a violence to inclusion that happens a lot too. Right, where when you say you're one of us, if somebody doesn't feel like they're one of you, then I think that that actually creates a problem, right? And it also, if the main voices in this campaign are American actresses, uh, I think that actually does matter no matter how good the intent is. Yeah. yeah. 
long time ago, you know, uh, we had a international women's organization, mm -hmm. and I was a student at Harvard in the Radcliffe College. We really, we don't care about color or anything. Mm -hmm. International women are, all women are one in unity, and the unity is a strength for all women, whatever they are. So I'm just wondering, um, is there any international women's organizations? Uh, if the United Nations is uh, just a dormant and uh, symbol, you know, don't do anything. Any any woman, uh, American women are really brilliant. I mean, I really have very uh, so much confidence in them, and uh, I think American women should involve. They can change something out. Um, I think that there are a number of different women's organizations. The Women's International League for Peace and Freedom occurs to me. Uh, Peace Women is another one of them. Women in Black that kind of goes across. I, I know it's been its existence in seven or eight different countries. Um, so I think that they do exist, but I also think that in terms of the <coughs> is there one everyone listens to and one where they think that all women are the same, I, I don't think so. Um, and I also think that, I, that there's this tendency of the people who talk the loudest to identify their problems as everybody else's problems, um, right? And I think that I don't want to take unseriously the problems of the people who talk the loudest. But pretty frequently, we kind of get into when one localized concern or demand becomes the thing, then there's a lot of difficulty identifying and things like that. Um, I was a part of a UNIFEM survey several years ago on uh, domestic violence kind of across borders, right? And so uh, I was asked to do the statistical analysis uh, in order to show a relationship between violence against women and gender inequality. And I tried to explain to them that those are uh, endogenous, so statistics probably wouldn't work too good, but that was okay with them. Um, uh, what interested me about it, though, is they insisted on doing the statistics by survey research. Um, and when you do, and all the surveys ask the same question. So the result of several of the questions interested me. Like, there were several places in the world. One of the questions was, have you ever been raped? There was a country in which the answer to that was yes, only by 8% of women. Um, and then the next question was, has your husband ever forced you to have sex against your will? The answer to that was that 55% of women said yes, right? Which then makes you analyzing the rape variable very different than, for example, in the United States, something like 80% of women said they'd experienced gender-based violence in the home. Now, it is actually true that the United States has a very serious gender-based violence problem. It's also true that American women have a significantly lower threshold, right? Like, so they're not answering the same question. And that's something that I've always been interested in when trying to think about these issues of gender, which is that if here, Your kids being kidnapped is something that is frequent enough that you can put it on a poster to say it happens enough that it's a, like a terrible thing that happens in my country. That's a very different kind of way of life than if mass kidnappings of little girls doesn't happen, right? Um, and I think that's very important to pay attention to, both when you're comparing these narratives and more generally. So to me, 
I kind of want to think about what it means to have women who are civilian victims of war and those innocent things you must protect and the different times that you might fight for them or not fight for them as well as kind of the different ways in which then those very same innocent women are understood to be scary or threatening uh, or something like that. So kind of when you think about will you stand for the women being lined up and enslaved, the answer is sometimes yeah, um, which is really kind of an interesting problem because it's not that there isn't this trope about uh, women being victims of political violence kind of across uh, the spectrum, right? The, the thing that's consistent across these stories is that the war threatens the women whose lives are going to be much worse because of it, and you need to know that because that's why you need to go take care of them. But the people who care for you to go take care of them are very different. And then the ways in which you're supposed to take care of them are very different. So in the World War I narrative, it's your government telling you to go protect the women and telling the women that in order to be protected, you have to be supported. And this is something that is national policy, right? Um, in 2014, it's a non-governmental campaign. Uh, there's not particularly any government telling you that you need to go do this. The Nigerian government's talking about it, but not actually doing anything about it. Um, and governments around the world, like Michelle Obama, have an opinion on it, but that opinion doesn't become US policy to do something about it, right? Um, and that happens kind of all sorts of different places around the world. There's certainly a racialized element to the ways in which these portrayals happen, but I don't think that this story can be reduced to that either. Because I think that it's also a question of kind of how it is that support is mobilized on this just warrior beautiful soul thing. Um, particularly, I think that the difference in the stories between, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, uh, and I'm still my boring question just to follow up. Um, did you also try to look at other two, not to compare apples and oranges, uh, about kidnapping, like we're talking about the kidnapping woman? Did you look at Yazidis in Iraq? Because they are, after they were kidnapped and sold to slavery, everyone was like, woman, Jane Peshmerga, Peshmerga is strong, and so on. It was not like protect our girls, it's like we should come and jump. Which is more, I think, related to the second example. Yeah. Uh, I have I seen this stuff. Yes, have I analyzed it academically? No, um, I might. I, I don't think that to me the I don't think this is a controlled comparison like you would think about in terms of case study analysis, right? I think it's a question of thinking about the different significations of narratives, um, and ultimately, I'd like to both understand them separately and together. Um, and I'm more interested, I think, in the different ways that women in war are talked about, because as I said, we've kind of done this for World War II um, as well. Um, and 
I think that one of the things that's interesting about kind of having these somewhat disparate cases, if I were looking at the cause for the difference, if I were concerned about like why it got fought for this time and not this time, then I think you'd need several more cases and things like that. But this is actually meant to kind of be about the discourse of the presentation instead of about why governments make policy or don't make policy. In part because I think that kind of my theoretical orientation, if I have kept this a secret, is pretty seriously post-structuralist. I'm not sure that you can answer those questions. Um, <laughs> and as a result, I'm not that interested in answering those questions. Um, instead, I'm a little bit more interested in how people are being read. Because I do think that the coverage of people reads an identity onto them. Um, which may or may not exist. And if there's a theme in my work, whether it's on women's violence and global politics, which is another thing that I spend a lot of time doing, it's I'm interested in how people are interpreted in the public presentations of the images and ideas of them. Um, so to me, this is as much, if not more, about the presentation of people than it is about the conflict. Yeah. This is slightly far afield, so feel free to pivot. Whereas in World War One. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, I'm good. Um, <laughs> where in World War One we see the images of the the soulful one to be protected and purity. There's a really interesting story in NPR that I don't know if anyone else had listened to. I've done a fair amount of work on pornography um, more than a decade or so ago. But what was described was that the pinup girl was supported by the U.S. government in World War II with the idea of hoping that men would satisfy sexual need alone so they would not go off base, contract VD, and therefore have a decline in a number of soldiers who could serve as combatants at any given time. Mm -hmm. And that the notion of the pinup girl, the one back home who then needs to be protected, I mean, they didn't say that on NPR, but that is the narrative <laughs> of what the pinup girl was, they then segued this into Playboy then took that image and you know Hugh Hefner did what he chose to with, with the whole thing which isn't the point of the conversation but have you seen that validated in your work with the notion of the pinup girl trying to um, lower rates of soldiers going off base? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um so there's actually a number of kind of reports from the US military at the time which are very interesting to read about that. Um, in part, actually, so the time I've read about more is in Korea mm -hmm. when they gave up on that because it didn't work and then right. started video testing prostitutes, right. right? Like, which was kind of an interesting. Well, the notion that pornography right. would decrease yeah. sexual activity is, right. is they missed the. Yeah, that, that doesn't seem to have been valid. Their research was <laughs> as comprehensive as ours. It turns out yeah. that, that pornography doesn't make you feel like screwing less. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there, have been, there have been some policy issues with this, stuff like that. Um, you know, I mean, I think that. Uh, one of the interesting things to me has been watching militaries attempt to manage sexuality. Right. Um, right. Like they've a lot of militaries have done it through the requirement of being straight to fight and or trying to figure out a way to pretend like that's a requirement, relax it, and allow homoeroticism. Um, and then there's also this sense that militaries need to provide sexuality. 
right? right? Or at least manage the sexuality which is not provided. To me, I think that that's in part because you need the rush, the kind of like training regimes often sexualize fighting because the rush that comes with the sexualization motivates violent behavior, right? Like, so it's not an attempt to kind of cause chastity. It's an attempt to manage sexuality, right? right? Like, and that's one of the things that I think was most interesting about the World War I posters is it doesn't really look like that's been figured out, right? Like there it's let's try and cause chastity um, in a lot of senses. And then that's something that militaries kind of post-World War I gave up on and tried to manage. Um, you know, and one of the things that I think is really interesting is the different ways in which there's sexualization, right? Because you have the girls of World War One as this kind of scary, sexualized thing, but those clearly aren't the same girls that are beautiful, right? Um, and I think that that's something that's really kind of an interesting juxtaposition that you can think about, too. Yeah. I think kind of jumping off that, what's interesting in the Boko Haram case is that this is something. This is more anecdotal. I have no like data to back this up, but it seems like the description of these girls who were kidnapped um, pretty, pretty suddenly shifted from being schoolgirls to just girls when the suicide bomber thing happened. Mm -hmm. And among a lot of the military men that I've contacted, come into contact with, and men broadly, like schoolgirls thing is a pretty sexually charged notion of like someone you want to protect because there's someone you wouldn't viably find as a sexual partner. I think that that's true, but a language issue. That is, I think the word schoolgirls is used more frequently. Like, I, th I would agree that there's a sexualization to it in the United States, right? But I'm not, I don't know enough about the local context, but my sense reading the local newspapers was that maybe that word was a little more like just the one you would use. Sure, but I mean, in the context of these American papers sure. saying that now they're becoming suicide bombers, yeah. it seemed to me with my own like poor recollection that there was a pretty significant shift. I, I think that there was. I think that the word schoolgirls was used a lot early in it. Um, and then I think that you kind of, it backs off of that, which is really interesting. And as I said, I'm interested in part in kind of the policy impotence that comes as a result of being unable to save your girls, right? Um, so the, the part of World War I that I didn't talk a whole lot about is uh, there's actually a lot of feminist analysis that's taken place of the British embargo on Germany post the ceasefire before the signing of the treaty. And there's actually a lot of policy controversy at the time about this. Um, particularly Herbert Hoover, who was at the time the chair of the U.S. Food Administration, which was a thing, um, <laughs> was very strongly opposed to the continuation of the embargo. His argument was that the Germans had surrendered to feed their women and children. And if the women and children died anyway, uh, then there would be a terrible anger in Germany that would rise again. Um, and then Churchill actually made the same argument for a different direction. He's like, well, once everybody's starved out of Germany, they're going to be defeated for good, right? 
But both of them, though they disagreed on the end, agreed that the signification of punishing civilians post the ceasefire was kind of some sense of ultimate defeat, right? That that's, that, that was the thing they were stopping fighting before they had to for. And then uh, by continuing to wave it over their head, either you were going to show them how bad they got beat, really, um, or you were going to piss them off and make World War II. Um, and of course, Hoover was like, oh, look at me, I predicted World War II, um, which certainly <laughs> is not true either. Uh, but what interested me about this is that there's this discourse where if you can't save your girls, right, then you have failed as a man and as a state. And I think that that's something that's really important to pay attention to, not only because you have stories about the women who are being held captive, but also actually if you look at the way that states frame how states treat each other, right? If you look at the stories of the rape of Belgium or the rape of Kuwait, these are stories where you're less of a man state if you don't protect the feminine state that you were supposed to protect. Right, and it kind of goes in the same part of a war narrative to think about it like that. And uh, mapping onto that, right, protect from whom? Mm -hmm. So the idea, I think, in all of that narrative, which I know you know, but I don't know how much is theory around this um, <coughs> type of understanding on civilian combatant relationship and gender norms, I think is little discussed within the Kennedy School more broadly is the notion is that it's um, as if the women of society predominantly are viewed as an asset of the males to protect, which is why you, of course, never see a decline in violence against women during any of those time periods, because there's not actually a decline. In, um, we just don't want other people coming in and being violent to the women here, because it's our domain and our privilege. In fact, most places where war and conflict happens, the levels of domestic violence rise. Right. Right. Um, so people are, so at home, people are more abusive to the women they're trying to save, right? Which is actually why Sue Ray Peterson called it the protection racket, right? The, 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 it's that women are by definition protected, even though no women are actually being offered protection, right? Um, so that's kind of, and that's uh, stark, right? Because some people are being protected. Um, and some women are not being characterized as people who should be protected. Um, but in some sense, the policy claim to protection doesn't match the protection actually provided. And that's why feminist scholars have called it the protection racket, because they're suggesting that states and state militaries and even sometimes non-state groups kind of get their claim to fame by protecting the innocent women and children back home when that protection fails as often as, if not more often, than it succeeds. Um, and they're kind of unrelated, right, until there's been some ultimate success or ultimate failure. You're not being tracked as a state in your progress by the protection you're actually providing, right? So can you give us a prediction? A prediction and a question. Oh, okay. So currently, since 2012, when Leanne Panetta made the shift that all combat roles, which used to be closed to women without a congressional exemption, are now open to women without a congressional exemption, 
we see within the U.S. the five branches all moving towards different different integration pathways, where the Army is doing an integration pathway where each role will have a set of defined skills and abilities that have to be met, but they're non-gender specific. You know, if you meet the male or female, you're in. If you don't meet the male or female, you're out. And we now see images put forward by the U.S. military across the branches for the recruitment of women to join, where we now see women in all kinds of imagery, which is really different than this imagery. Mm -hmm. One, what do you think we're going to see in the future around imagery that's put out by the government around this? And two, if you, with all of your knowledge and analysis of this over time, could define what type of imaging would come out focused on women who will be in the military as opposed to the civilian population, mm -hmm. what do you think would be the imaging and structures of those images that would be most advantageous to equality? So there's this great new book uh, by a woman named Melissa Brown called Enlisting Masculinity. Um, and it has, it's actually, interestingly enough, about enlisting women. I'm not really sure why the title is that. Um, but one of the things it does is it thinks about US military recruiting images of women over the last six or seven years. Um, and one of the things it finds is a massive spike in the use of women in recruiting ads. Right. Um, but the women who are used in those recruiting ads, and they're doing all sorts of different jobs, right. uh, are wearing high heels, have long hair, are wearing jewelry and makeup, right? Um, which, of course, if any of you have spent a significant amount of time in the enlisted ranks in the US military, not really how it turns out. Um, and it's very interesting because it's projecting this image of, of the woman as as capable as the man and next to him, but if and only if there's a maintenance of femininity, right? And I think that that sends an image both to women and to the military more generally that together doesn't mean the same. Um, and my sense is that as women are integrated into the U.S. military, and even more so as women are integrated into combat roles in the U.S. military, the level of intra-military sexual violence is going up pretty quickly, right? Like, and I don't think, there are theorists who suggest that's because the men in the military are hostile to their being women, so they're punishing them by injuring them. I don't think that's the case. Like, I, I haven't really seen a whole lot of evidence that people actually feel that way. But what I do think is that Cynthia Endler said something really interesting about 20 years ago. She said, putting women in institutions structured by values that subordinate femininity doesn't necessarily change the institution. Sure. Right, um, And I don't think that it's as simple as that because I don't think that the US military isn't changing. But I do think that there is some sense that there's an identity confusion with women are allowed here, women are allowed to do everything that men do. But by the way, if you still can't run your mile in five minutes, then we're going to call you a girl and it doesn't actually matter if you are one or not. Right, And I think that that kind of thing makes it difficult to disaggregate what gender equality in the military would look like. Um, because I think it, if you imagine a world in which women are half of everything in the military, 
I'm still not sure that's a gender equal military, right? Um, and so I think that if I had to, if I had to suggest what the images looked like, so this is one of the reasons why it's real great to be an academic instead of a policymaker, because I just get rid of them all together. Um, but, but, but kind of trying to play in the recruitment image sense, what I would suggest is, how about you take pictures of real soldiers, right? Like, because most of the people in recruitment ads, their role in the military is modeling. Um, which is to me not exactly a role that I that, that makes a whole lot of sense for military to have, and I get that it's about <laughs> recruitment and propaganda, but I also think that I think that if you see real soldiers, it talks to different people than if you see models as soldiers, mm -hmm. um, and I think that that might be strategically beneficial to being the U.S. military, right? Like, because you would get the people who actually want to be in the military a little bit more, maybe. Yeah. I'm just wondering, a uh, long time ago, uh, this tiny social experiment, uh, I did with uh, the graduate uh, professor who went to China and did the research on this woman problem and so on. And they said, if any man be woman or uh, abuse woman. In China at that time, all women's organizations go together and punish that man who uh, attacked one woman. So what I mean is, in general, I think we need some strong women's organization who can defend women and also to teach women how to defend themselves. Good argument. I think fundamentally, I'm not sure I'm comfortable answering violence with violence. Um, and I think that that's an individual choice and question. But I also, I worry that one of the things that we don't talk about about all of these images is we assume that everybody's comfortable being stuck in this category, right? That like, everybody in the picture is unproblematically called a woman or a girl. And at least in my experience doing research in LBGTQ issues in global politics, I think that there are a lot of people who being stuck in the category is itself kind of problematic. And that's not to say that it's not important to pay attention to the places where gender subordination is enacted almost uniformly on people who are read to be women, whether they would self-identify that way or not. But it is to say that maybe the actual provision of protection should be based on how people are treated when they're read particular ways instead of kind of card-carrying membership in the club, um, at least to me. And I think that that's something that's actually pretty interesting. Um, I, I mentioned that I've been doing a fair amount of research for the US government on women in ISIS and Daesh. And one of the interesting <coughs> things that I found is that encountering violent extremism rhetoric, uh, there's a lot of use of the word youth, which means men between ages 18 and 24. Um, but at the same time, there's no real analyzing those people as men. 
right? Like there is no real kind of understanding of the ways in which gender expectations of them influence their choices, even though it's pretty clear that they do. Um, and so to me, I think that one of the reasons I do this work is because I'm interested in how you get to the gender expectation that has an image like this, right? That says that, that is able to comfortably categorize all of these people as women, and then by you looking at them, you know those are the innocent civilian victims of war. And then of course, like, organizations that commit extra legal violence have often capitalized on this, right? Like, you put a bomb in a woman, make it look like she's pregnant, she gets past the security checkpoint. That worked for about 10 years, right? It doesn't work as well anymore. Uh, but, but it worked almost flawlessly almost every time it was tried because a pregnant woman is something that we signify as, by definition, nonviolent, right? So, like, this is part of a larger story about the way that we read bodies as threats or not. Um, when you go through airport security in most countries around the world, you have to choose if you're male or female, right? Um, and, and I figured out what happens if you don't choose. Uh, it doesn't go well. Uh, <laughs> you spend a whole lot of time with some creepy guy in a little room. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I don't know why, but my best guess is that Gender is one of the orders where you can disaggregate stuff and make sense of it, and when you can't, then it feels like disorder, and disorder is scary, right? Like, I think that's the reason that trans and intersex and queer bodies have such a hard time with airport security. Not because, by definition, anybody's actually scared of the existence of somebody who's neither male nor female, although that might actually also be true, but instead because when you don't have clear categories that people fall in, that's a signifier of disorder to people who live their lives by being able to order things. Um, and I think that these gendered orders, these shortcuts, are one of the things that make our war narrative simple enough to make sense to us. And so I think that when you say, I'm gonna go fight a war, for the innocent woman, the gender part of it is what brings up all the cues in people's heads that make that story make sense on kind of a subconscious level. Well, thank you so much for your talk. And join us next week. Dr. Yana Dallas is going to be talking about designing symbolic awards to motivate knowledge workers in gender type fields Evidence from a field experiment at Wikipedia. Oh, yes. <laughs> Anything else you want to say about your talk? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, good job. <laughs>